From pitch side to print to the press box above Providence Park. It's Jamie Goldberg from the Oregonian and Richard Farley from the Portland Timbers and Thorns. This is Soccer Made in Portland. On the scene, all the time. Welcome everyone to Soccer Made in Portland. Uh, We had a lot of Soccer Made in Portland this weekend. I have almost forgotten what it was like to be at Providence Park, what it was like to cover a game uh, here in Portland in person. It it, it almost felt weird. Yeah, it felt weird at the beginning and then it felt pretty normal once you actually got into the games and it was so nice to have two first division games to watch. Obviously, there were two second division games to watch last week and uh, I think (laughs) as great as it was, the anticipation, the build-up and the reveal, I think there's also a sense that it would be nice to have things back to normal a little bit, to have the teams regularly playing here, to get the kind of excitement that we saw over those two games on a regular basis. Unfortunately, (laughs) it's going to be a little bit of time before either team is playing at Providence Park again, but let's focus on the now, Jamie, or the recent now this weekend. Yeah, um... Let's start with the Timbers for LAFC. My prediction was the wrong way. <laughs> I predicted a 3-2 win for the Timbers. It, it didn't go that way. It was a 3-2 loss uh, for the Timbers. You said the Timbers allow fewer than two goals. Um, yeah, so you were actually closer than I think. I mean, I was I was imagining, to be honest with you, a one nothing win for LAFC or a 1-1 draw, something around there. Um, wasn't really, like I said on the show last week, wasn't really seeing a Timbers win out of this one, but the fact that you saw this game being a lot more dynamic than I thought it was going to be, I think that yeah. gets you a little bit closer to where we actually were. Yeah, um, I, I think, uh, especially after that first half, I, I was thinking I was uh, had done a very poor job predicting, but um, it, it turned out to be a little <laughs> bit closer with, with the Timbers fight in the second yeah. half. Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, why don't we just go to a listener question just to start off with at the beginning, because Christopher is asking us something kind of overarching. What was our favorite moment from the home opener? Was it the pregame? Was it the game itself? Was it uh, after the game? I guess there were various things that happened after the game that we will end up talking about here. But Jamie, how about you? I I think I it was just really cool seeing the Timbers Army TIFO. And obviously, that's normal. Um, They they have TIFOs for every home opener. But to see the cheering at that moment, the TIFO, the entire stadium, just how loud it was to really feel that for the first time, um, both since last season. And just because I, I think with the 4,000 more fans, it was noticeably louder. Um, I, I think that was probably my favorite moment. Like like you said, once the game got going, it, it felt sort of normal. You, you almost sort of forgot that the East side, until you look up and look out there, you forgot the East side was different. Um, but, but that was a moment mm. for me where I really felt the difference. I really felt the, the noise level was, was a different level. Yeah, I was about to say that my uh, highlight was the Christian Paredes goal coming right out at halftime. And just kind of the wave that the Timbers created and rode to that goal as such an early response to going into intermission down two goals. But as you were talking, Jamie, I was remembering my thoughts very, very early in the day right after gates opened and just how quickly the Timbers army filled up all of their sections and then filled them up all the way to the roof. And they just stayed so packed all day. And it it was a reminder that amongst the things that might change in Providence Park over the years, amongst the new buildings that might go up, amongst the new displays that are going to go in, that the fans in the North End are always going to be a major part of this. And honestly, on the field, uh, they were still the loudest Absolutely. ones, and I, 
I think they uh, I think they put in a great show yeah, on Saturday. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I don't think I think the just the noise level of the entire crowd is, is uh, higher. But yeah, the, the north end's always going to be where it's at. Um, you're not going to be looking yeah. up at the east side to see what the fans are doing. It's it's what's going on, on the north side. Yeah, there was a point on Saturday. I'll, the point was at halftime where I was like, okay, well, I've got to think about something to write about here. And all through the first half, I was kind of tossing these ideas around with people around the field, just saying, you know, I think something needs to be said because we have been anticipating this new field for so long and this new era of Portland soccer. But in those two hours before the game, the thing that was most prominent in the stadium, even more than the stand that over the last week or for some of us over the last months we've gotten used to seeing was the fact that the first game of the year, those people were here so early and with such density. And it really, really did stand out. Obviously, the second half changed. There was something different to write about at that point. But I think that uh, the Timbers Army, the 107 is a prominent part of Saturday's story. Yeah, so you, you mentioned it a few times, second half changed, Christian Predis's goal. So let, let's talk a little bit about uh, what happened in the game. The LAFC, I, I think, mm-hmm. was, was completely dominant in, in the first half. Um, the, the goals that were conceded, uh, I don't think the Timbers can be that happy about. Um, but the Timbers do recover in the second half. They they score two goals. They, they only lose three to two. It, it's not a router, a, a definitive win for LAFC that it felt like it was going to be in the first half. So... Coming out of this game, how do you sort of feel about the Timbers' performance? Um, well, I feel I disagree with your description on the first half, but maybe it's just a matter of semantics. Obviously, Jeff Antonella's mistake really changes the tenor of the first half mm-hmm. within six minutes. LAFC goes ahead. I thought the Timbers did a good job of responding to that. We saw the dynamic that would carry on for most of the rest of the game where the Timbers were pushing LAFC back into their own end. And part of that is because LAFC was playing with a lead most of the time. But then the Timbers make another mistake later and Jorge Morera doesn't get to the spot to beat Diego Rossi and it's two to nothing. I thought except, except for some isolated mistakes, the teams were pretty even. And that's not to say LAFC didn't have their chances. They clearly had their chances. They went, up, they went in a, um, into halftime up two to nothing. But I thought the game was kind of playing out like the game in Los Angeles a little bit. Just two teams taking punches at each other and the other team landing them a little bit. Uh, in the second half, I, I thought that dynamic continued except for the Timbers were better. Uh, I just think that the first half, the difference was the Timbers were just some mistakes that, that we really need to talk about. We need to talk about the continued mistakes of Jeff Atanella. We need to t- talk about the continued defensive deficiencies of Jorge Morer because those two in combination meant the Timbers went into the locker room with a hole that turned out too deep to dig out of. Yeah, I, I mean, I think I disagree that it was sort of limited to those two errors, but clearly those two errors um, were, were the story of the first half. I, I felt like the Atanella's mistake in the six minutes sort of turned the momentum in LAFC's favor and LAFC kept that. I, I felt like they had other chances to score. Um, it could have potentially been worse than 2-0 at halftime. So I, I do think we disagree on the first half, but clearly the mistake. So so like you said, let's get into that. Let's start with Jeff Adenella. Um He passes the ball, tries to pass the ball to Jorge Villafania in the sixth minute. Carlos Vela comes in, steals it. It's a poor pass, easily scores. It's not the first time we've seen Adanella have distribution issues either. I I mean, we we were talking about this after the Columbus game specifically as well, which is sort of uh, the last game that Jeff Adanella was the 100% for sure starter. Um, Since then, he's only started, I think, two of the last Mm -hmm. five games, um, something along those lines. But he he threw two balls directly to Columbus players. One of those led to a goal. 
it didn't end up costing the Timbers a result there. Um, so I want you to sort of get your opinion on Adonella, the distribution issues, and then a lot of people ask a version of this question. So Ben says, will Adonella see another start uh, at this point, barring an injury to Clark? Yeah, I think that second question is pretty easy to answer that we don't know, but there seems to be a justification if he doesn't. So, you know, Jamie, you asked the question in the post-match press conference. Giovanni Savarese basically defended Jeff Atnella and talked about Jeff Atnella in the same breath as Steve Clark. But there, there is a pattern here. Uh, you alluded to Columbus. And it's a, it's a very specific type of distribution error because I wouldn't call distribution Jeff Atnella's strength to begin with. But he doesn't make mistakes like this all the time. But he makes them, he seems to be making them more... Um, more than other keepers and they're aberrational mistakes that's the thing he's not constantly passing to the other team there are mistakes that are rare but they're also really bad they're leading directly to chances they're not just you know i you know 40 yards away i found somebody I and mean, he threw the ball directly to frederico Iguain twice in columbus he kicked the ball directly to carlos vela these are these seem like more yeah. mind locks than a pattern of mistake but at this point especially if you add in what happened in the second leg in Seattle last year, where he gave up a goal that was also, it wasn't a distribution problem, but it was just like, Jeff, what happened there type of goal? Um, I think it's fair for anybody to go, Is Atenella, has Atanella proven himself too error prone to be a consistent goalkeeper right now? I honestly don't have an answer for that, Jamie. I'd be interested to hear your answer to the question. But if somebody answered yes to that question, I'm also not going to tell them they're wrong. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's tough. I think Jeff has become a really important leader on this team. Um, he, he's a, a really good professional. And he. I think from that standpoint, um, and also, I mean, when you look at his talent as a goalkeeper, his shot-stopping ability specifically, he, he's an asset to have in the net. But... I I don't see how Savarese can continue starting him at this point. I, I think the difficult thing is that when you're dealing with these type of errors, which really seem, like you say, to be mental-type locks, um, the worry is if you take a goalkeeper out, like has happened to Adonel in the last few weeks after the Columbus game, you you run the risk of them thinking a lot more about that men- those mental mistakes and, and sort of creating more mental mistakes. And maybe that impacted him coming back in after getting only limited starts and having mistakes in this game. Maybe not. Um, I, I think that's sort of the side to you try to let him work through it. Uh, just because, um, maybe you're thinking that if you don't let him work through it, it's just going to get worse, but it's professional sports. And for me, given how close that competition has been with Clark and Anella, even if it might be mentally difficult, um, I think I think Savaresi has to go with Clark at this point. I think Adonel has proven himself to be too uh, error-prone. And maybe that'll change in the future. Maybe I, I think that he will be given opportunities to win that position back. Um, but they can't rely on a player that is coming in there and all too consistently making mistakes that are going to lead directly to goals. Yeah, I, I, part of me definitely agrees with you. But then the other side of my mind is saying that this uh this mistake that happened on Saturday, it only adds to the picture. It doesn't become the picture. There's still a list of pros and cons for each of these goalkeepers. And admittedly, with Jeff Antonella making these mistakes over the last, what are we at, eight months now, 
the cons list starts to grow a little bit. And that's probably part of the reason why Steve Clark is in this picture to begin with. I think what complicates this, well, there are a couple things. First, kind of from an emotional perspective regarding Jeff Atnella, this is a guy who was kind of entering his prime goalkeeping years, had really hadn't been a fully established number one for a whole season until his first year out of school when he didn't sign with RSL and he went down and played for Tampa in the NASL. He hadn't really been, you know, the, the closest he'd been to a starter was when he won the job from Jake Gleason each of the last two years here. He went into this year, he's finally a number one, and he had it taken from him. He became the Jake Gleason. It's, it's a little bit heartbreaking because he's been waiting his whole career for this. And I think part of the heartbreak is the fact that he was in this platoon situation. And I think I, I disagree with this, but I think a lot of smart people have brought this up, that it's different being in a week-to-week scenario and relying on the tactics of the weekend when you're a goalkeeper than it is if you're a field player. I don't agree with that, but I certainly see the logic that there is a different mentality to goalkeeping where you need to have an infrastructure around you that allows you to fail and recover from those failures on the field. And I guess we're going to see in the coming two weeks whether that infrastructure exists around Jeff Attenella yeah, or not. The, I think the difficult thing in Attenella's case is how close Steve Clark is um, in this race and the fact that we've already seen that Savarese is willing to start Steve Clark. I, I think if this was a, a case where Attenella was the Romando of Portland, you know, it's a keeper that's going to yeah. be starting and it will start no matter what. He'll, he'll, he would get the opportunity to work through that. And, and, and that is probably better for him mentally long term. And it's something he might be able to work through. But when the competition's so close, is it really even fair to Steve Clark to say, we're going to keep going with this guy, even though based on recent performances, there's not really a, a reasoning for that. Yeah, I mean, I think the only thing that could make it fair is just making it clear to these guys, look, you're both going to be allowed to make mistakes on the field, and no matter what, how you train in between games and how we feel that you match up with the team that's coming up is going to define our decision. And I can see some people not liking that justification, but it it is a justification that makes sense on some level. I will say the other thing that complicates this picture beyond Jeff's particular circumstances is the returning health of Alias Ivicic. So... Nobody has seen Alvaz Ivicic play in a competitive game at this point. It's just getting to the point where Giovanni Savarese is being asked questions about Ivicic. He's admitted that Ivicic has returned to a certain level of, of playing time. And you would think over the next month or so, Ivicic might get a crack at a T2 game. Or he's going to start training as if he's in competition for the starting role. Because we were told all offseason that this isn't just a vanity signing. This is somebody that was being brought in to compete with at the time we thought compete with Jeff Atnala. Well, now it looks like it could very well be a three-goalkeeper race between the three of them. And if Jeff Atnella is starting two steps behind Steve Clark, you have to think it's really more of a two-and-a-half or two-goalkeeper race at that point. So obviously, Jamie, we need to read the signs coming out of the training, who starts in the Open Cup next week. I think that's maybe one of the few things that are important about that game in Tacoma. But we have to see how the coaching staff and Jeff react to what happened on Saturday. I will say, before we move on, the one thing I do appreciate about Jeff, and one of the reasons it does make it hard to see uh, a player like him going through this, is he he, he was in the locker room. He's one of the few people that was in the locker room after that game. Well, right there, willing to answer questions, knowing he was immediately going to be asked about that mistake. Um, He's been a leader and a professional on this team, and and it's tough that now that he has this opportunity, it's a little bit up in there. Yes, absolutely. Uh, Jamie, some lineup changes this week. Uh, We saw formation change from what we saw in Philadelphia. We saw a couple people 
uh, come in, one of them because of fitness reasons. What did you think about the return to a 4-2-3-1 formation and the changes personnel-wise that Giovanni Savarese and his staff made for Saturday's yeah, game? Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like, like you said, in terms of a Bobasi, it's not clear that that was a decision made because of formation-wise or a decision made more um, because of Bobasi was coming off an injury. Um, I feel like when Obobese came in in the second half, he gave the Timbers a boost. Obviously, any any player uh, coming in uh, well-rested is potentially of that level. It's potentially going to give the club a boost. But I definitely would like to try to see how this uh, formation and lineup could work with Obobese in the starting lineup, with Blanco, with Fernandez, and with Larry. I don't think we've seen all four of those guys starting at the same time yet. Uh, and I, I still think mm-hmm. that's, if you're going to get the best players on the field, that's what the Timbers need to go with, and they need to see if a formation works there. So maybe this one was a little bit more of a fitness thing for um, Abobasi. Uh, we'll have to see. Um, but that's, I was kind of disappointed not to see that. Similarly, I, I don't know why Morera was back in the lineup over Valentin after the game in Philadelphia. I, I don't, I, I, maybe that's giving players opportunities when their spots back. But as we talked about before, He's been a liability defensively. Valentin hasn't. And I, I was surprised to see that change. I think f- part of the reason I wasn't surprised to see that change is I don't think that any of the three fullbacks are, are given at this point. Uh, I, it's not profound for me to say that. We saw on Saturday based on the changes. And also we saw very early in Saturday's game the switches of play went out to, that went out to Marrera. He was getting forward early. He had all that space on the right side. And I think they saw something in not only how... LAFC likes to play Jordan Harvey on the left side, but how LAFC likes to play their fullbacks in general. I mean, you saw Jordan Harvey get high into midfield, kind of play that more modern defensive midfielder role that sometimes we see fullbacks playing. And Jorge Morera is more apt to exploit that than Zarek Valentin is. I also think there there is this trial and error that still has to happen with Jorge Morera. He can't get better defensively unless you keep giving him an opportunity to succeed. And it, for me, it, it's a little bit frustrating from the sidelines because basically this team has not played well in a 4-2-3-1 all year. And the same mistakes keep happening where the flanks get exploited, the weak side gets attacked, goals get given up. And we saw that on the second goal as if it was on a, on a chalkboard. Um, Jorge Marrera doesn't get to the spot to either defend Diego Rossi or win the ball from Diego Rossi before he touches it inside Jeff Atnella's left post. So, yeah, I think we have to keep asking questions about that. And the question that I keep asking, Jamie, is how long does the experiment have to go before you have enough data to where you say, oof, yeah, we really, really have to stop putting ourselves in this situation? I mean, for me, they're 13 games into the year. It's still early. We saw last year, it wasn't until, what, game 27, 28, that they really settled into a lineup and said, this is it. And they made their push. But sometime between game 13 and 27, you've got to come to a conclusion. On yeah, it. I, I feel like the experiment still has to happen. Um, I think that the Timbers need to be careful on, on what games you're giving Marrera opportunities when he's been, um, when he's played defensively like he has. I, I mean, LAFC was going to be a difficult game defensively for the Timbers no matter what. Um, I, I think... For me, having a player that's a little bit more defensively sound in Valentin and sacrificing a little bit of that ability to go forward in the attack made, made a bit more sense. Um, but yeah, I, I don't think that experiment's over because the Timbers brought in Marrera for a reason. They wanted a right back that can get forward, and they don't really have that 
in Valentin. And so if they just settle on Viafania and Valentin, they're losing that element that they wanted. Um, but yeah, I mean, sometime in July, August, maybe you, you really want to start settling in on a lineup and not be experimenting too much if you think it's going to cost you goals. Absolutely. So we'll we'll see how that plays out. I think there's also an interesting part of this discussion where you're talking about ceiling versus floors, where the ceiling for a team that has properly incorporated Jorge Morera into its approach is higher than the ceiling for a team that is relying on Zarek Valentin. But the floor is also lower, and we see that with every defensive mistake. So it'll be interesting to see when they stop trying to achieve that ceiling and accept whatever floor that they have. Uh, But speaking of ceilings, Brian Fernandez, again, scores a goal. That's four goals in, what, 2.3 games at this point. Really spectacular goal this weekend, kind of liberated from his assignment of testing the line by Jeremy Obobese coming in. Cross from Jorge Villafania, headed down by Jeremy Obobese, but only so far down because Brian Fernandez is in the perfect position to execute an overhead kick that brings the score to 3-2. to two. Jamie, the thing that, that I noticed is everybody seems three years younger when Brian Fernandez is going. It seems like there's a part of their vitality that he unlocks. There's something that we see from Diego Valeri, from Sebastian Blanco, from Diego Chara. Maybe it's just... The mere fact that he, by pressuring the defense, creates more space for all of them. Maybe it's as basic as that. But when we saw the way that the team approached their attack coming out of halftime and just that wave of everybody pushing forward going, we're going to get a goal here. It's really difficult to imagine them playing like that without Brian Fernandez. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with that. I, in terms of the space element, that's something I asked Valeria about last week because that does seem like the most obvious reason why... You've sort of seen the level of the players around Fernandez also sort of come up at the same time that he's coming to the lineup because other teams have to be aware of him. But I think just with the fire he plays, with the the amount that he clearly wants to score, it, it does sort of raise the level on from a mentality standpoint. And that's what I think you saw in the second half. I, I think in the first half, um, I mean, the expectations for Fernandez, I, I feel like, are probably higher than they should be because because at some point he's not going to score one to two goals every single game, I think. <laughs> I, I, I assume that's not going to be what we see, but but I guess we'll have to see that. Um, so the first half sort of felt like, oh, he, he needs to get on the ball a little bit more. He needs to be a little bit more dangerous. Um, he needs to be able to finish the chances he gets. And then the second half, uh, just with the mentality came out. I, I mean, I, he was critical uh, to the Timbers having a comeback in that game. I, I don't think they would have had the comeback that they had without him. Yeah, I think in the first half, the three people in LAFC's midfield, Latif Blessing, Mark Anthony Kay, and Eduard Atuesta, were were winning the battles that they needed to. They were controlling play. They weren't allowing the Timbers to win second balls or win first balls and then kick it to somebody who could then find Brian Fernandez making the run. They were just not getting the time that they needed. Something happened in the second half where they were identifying space better. Or, you know, like Giovanni Savarese said, at some point they just started winning those battles and not losing them. And at that point, Brian Fernandez came into the game. And I mean, it kind of goes back to what we were originally talking about. I, I don't think that LAFC dominated the first half but I do think they were they were probably the better they, not probably they went into halftime up two to nothing, but even beyond the goals, their ability to win the battles that kept the timbers from getting Sebastian Blanco, Diego Valeri, and Brian Fernandez more involved, I mean that allowed them to play the game on their terms through the first forty five yeah, minutes absolutely um 
I guess looking more into that second half, I mean, outside of the Timbers' comeback, outside of Fernandez's performance, I think the other talking point coming out of this was uh, really the tension between LAFC and the Timbers and ultimately a little scuffle on the sideline towards the end of the second half. Um, I don't remember if it was in stoppage time or not. Uh, Diomande and Fernandez are both shown yellow cards uh, after the teams get into a shoving match. Julio Cascante gets pushed to the ground. Um, Ben wants to know, should the disciplinary committee issue a suspension to Diomande for throwing down Cascante? I'm adding to that. What about Fernandez who responded to that by putting his hand, um, on Diomande's neck? Yeah, I, I, I'd be more concerned about Fernandez because that comes close to just a kind of a cut and dry rule. Whereas, um, I'll, I'll readily admit that I maybe don't know enough about why Julio ended on the ground the way that he did. Um, my first reaction was that that looked like a a soccer play, basically, when these confrontations happen and somebody ends up on the ground and um, you're trying to you're trying to draw attention to something that you think uh, wrong happened. Uh, but I I'm not an expertise I'm not an expert on the chaos that happened after Sebastian Blanco took down Carlos Vela and then fun ensued. I, I will say this, and I say this with a little bit of disappointment, Jamie, because I really hate admitting that this is the case between these two teams only, what, four games and five games into their existence. Giovanni Savarese's willingness to use the word rivalry in responses in multiple places not only... I think accurately reflects the mood between the two teams, but it's something that we might just have to admit. I personally like, as somebody that likes soccer, don't like the idea that a team that has a, what, a 44-year history can be drawn into a rivalry with a team that doesn't even have a 44-month history. But at some point, the tension between the teams and the way that those two teams play on the field and not only that, the dynamic between the fan bases demands that it be called a rivalry. So, I, Jamie, I'm a little bit heartbroken that that has, to, that has to be the case. But when Giovanni Savarese is using the word rivalry after the game yesterday, it doesn't feel like an inapt description of what's going on between the two teams. Yeah, I mean, rivalry is the word he used. It's, it's a weird word for, for me to want to use because I feel like it's, that's really reserved for Seattle, uh, Portland. Um, but clearly, yep. the, there's it, it's heated between these two teams. Ever since um, last year's situation where Diomande said that he was called a racial slur on the field in U.S. Open Cup by a Timbers player that was investigated. There was um, essentially the Timbers said there was no evidence of that. U.S. Open Cup said there was no evidence of that they could base anything on. But ever since then, there's clearly been this tension between the two teams. And then coming out of this game along with the shoving match. I, I mean, Bob Bradley's comments, um, basically saying, um, the, angrily talking about how the Timbers were coming after Carlos Vela, uh, sort of adds to that mm-hmm. a little bit more. Um, Savarese and Bradley were having a heat discussion after the game. I, I mean, I think all of that adds to this tension that, that seems to be growing as opposed to dissipating. And so I, absolutely expect the games between these two teams are going to continue to be like this. Yeah, I think so also. And I think it's been very interesting the way that people, including the league's website, has reacted to Bob Bradley's 
comments. I think maybe it's his status as a former national team manager. Maybe it's the success he's had formerly in Major League Soccer. But he's almost being portrayed as almost like this moral arbiter of the sport. And not just based on what we saw this weekend. His comments about how teams should be built from previous this year, previously this year. How teams should play. What's the right way to play? Do you have an obligation to play a certain way? Timbers fans probably going back to the beginning of the MLS era where Darlington Nagby started to emerge. And you saw how teams treated Darlington Nagby. Multiple times a year, you will see teams try to be rough with Sebastian Blanco, Diego Valeri, even Diego Chara, whether it's to try to get them off their game or to draw them into a game that will leave them susceptible to be being carded or having to be substituted. This is the fact of life for Carlos Vela in this league. And to the extent that the Timbers, I think, stepped over the line, I think they were punished. There were a number of cards that went out there. Maybe you can say that the referees should have managed the game in a different way. But if he had managed it in a different way, then the Timbers would have played in a different way. I don't really... I was about to say I don't see the point of what Bob Bradley is doing in public, but the point is to get the next referee thinking that Carlos Vela needs to be protected. And I don't think that's a bad argument, really. Like We want the stars to be able to play. But we also in a game like we saw on Saturday, don't want there to be a lack of options for teams. And I think ultimately if you protect players too much, then you get the same game being played over and over and over again. Yeah, I I was sort of surprised with Bradley's comments, but I I mean, that makes sense. Maybe I'm thinking about it more from the Timbers angle. I I felt like LAFC was also just spending a lot of time on the ground. Um, Obviously, Mm -hmm. to some degree, there's injuries, and and you don't want to question that, but it it also felt like time-wasting, which I I think those two elements are what sort of led to that shoving match where the two teams um, boiled over. And and look, I mean, Sebastian Blanco, we've seen him before. He got punished for this. He's going to have to miss the next MLS game for this, but a certain level of frustration or message sending happened when he took out Carlos Vela along the west side sideline in the second half, and he was deservedly carded for that. But beyond that, I can't really think of anything particularly dirty that happened in that game. There was certainly rough play. Larry Smabiala went through the back of Carlos Vela one time. Um, Bill Tuiloma went through the back of Carlos Vela one time, a number of different times, but this is this is not the first time this tactic has been employed in the world of soccer. And to even imply that it's an inappropriate tactic is a little bit judgmental. But at the same time, I, I kind of get what Bob Bradley's saying. For me, Jamie, it's more that we have gotten to the point where we're elevating Bob Bradley and his words above everybody else's. And it's the same thing that this whole, the whole league and the media that covers the league did with Tata Martino when he was here. It's like there, at any time there is one voice amongst the coaches, and that is scripture. And for a long time, it was Bruce Arena, and there have been other people that have come and gone, but Bob Bradley's words don't mean any, don't have any more weight than any other coach's words. And when he says that after a game, he's saying that because he's protecting his players, not because he has deep-rooted philosophical beliefs about what just happened. He, he doesn't want Carlos Vela yeah. to get hurt. Perfectly understandable. Let's put keep it in that yeah, context. I think that's fair. I And I... I think the rivalry or whatever you want to call it, the, the tension between the two teams has oh my God. only been amplified. Do we have to call, really it call it that? I don't call I'm going to say the tension I know, between but the you, two teams has been amplified. I, I'm with you. I hate calling it that, but I also feel at some point the teams are allowed to define it as a rival if they want. But then again, maybe that's where you to a greater extent than me, but me also, I've got to keep this in mind. Maybe that's where like some kind of objectivity gets to be able to say, yeah, you know, they're saying this word, but it doesn't, it doesn't feel quite right yet. So we'll just quote them, but we won't actually use the word ourselves. Well, I think that that yeah. feels right. So let's talk about an actual rivalry. Um, although in the contents of the <sighs> most uninteresting type of game, 
Um, <laughs> oh my God! Yeah, since we're not going to record next week because uh, there is no games this weekend, and there won't be much to talk about. But so we are going to preview uh, next week's games now. Um, and the Timbers are going to face the Seattle Sounders in the U.S. Open Cup. They're traveling to Tacoma, not Seattle, um, on Wednesday, yeah. June twelfth at seven thirty p.m. And I am so surprised that the Timbers are facing. Seattle on the road in U.S. Open Cup. They've only done that uh, three times in the last five years. They've also played an MLS team in the fourth round of the U.S. Open Cup where most teams end up playing a lower division team. Uh, The Timbers, because of how the U.S. Open Cup does draws with geographic uh, proximity, have faced MLS teams five times in the fourth round in the last five years. So Mm -hmm. my first question (laughs) for you is, can this tournament be taken seriously with the draw format they currently have? I think it can. I don't think the draw format is the best thing ever. I think it might be the best of a series of bad solutions right now. But look, the draw isn't the reason that nobody cares about U.S. Open Cup. People don't care about U.S. Open Cup more because the best teams in this country won't care about this competition for another month. And that's the bottom line. If these teams were willing to take a risk regarding their MLS seasons and go full out at this point in the calendar and we saw high quality games, then people would care about this competition. But really, the last few years, what's the highest quality game that we have seen in June from the US Open Cup? I can't, I mean, I remember last year's Timbers games because I covered them, but you tell me what the best part about the Earthquakes game is. I'm going to, I'm going to say, well, it's the T2 players that got to play the Galaxy game. I barely remember that game. I don't remember US Open Cup last year until they started taking it seriously at LAFC. So that's, I think that's for a lot of people who love Open Cup, that sucks to hear. And they probably want me to say something different to try to build up this competition. But the simple fact is that even Seattle, who has taken this competition more seriously than any team in the MLS era has shifted gears on this. So what are we supposed to do? Pretend the competition is something it's yeah, not. I, I agree with that statement. I, I also think in terms of the draw, um, when you look at the times that Seattle has won the U S open cup, the, the draws tend to have favored them. They've played pretty much all at home. They've started against a lower division team that the, the draw element matters to me because it matters in these opening rounds when teams don't really care. Um, having a good draw is essentially what gets the teams to the round where they then care, um, unless they happen to get through for one, for one reason or another. I mean, absolutely true. I mean, the Timbers drawing two home games yeah. last year meant that they didn't have to lose games to travel and they didn't have to deal with all of like, you know, going down to California twice. It's, it's very much different. And then even by the time they went down to California, they were in California anyway. They were already in LA because they had an MLS game that previous weekend. Um, and I think the other thing about you know, the times that Seattle has made a run. Most of the time that was back in the days when you could buy a home game yeah. too. So that obviously helped too. I mean, the fact that like if, if we didn't have a regional draw or if we had like instead of just eight regions, there were only two or three or four regions and the Timbers were playing in Colorado. Well, you're still traveling this day before. You're still traveling the day after. You have a three-day disruption to your routine. And at some point, in the middle of a season, a lot of teams just kind of go, kind of go. Why don't we just keep our first 11, 14 players at home, keep them on the same routine, and roll the dice and see if the next fourteen can get us into the next round? That's the world we have right now, and I think that's what the world would be even if we had four regions instead of eight. So Wesley wants to know what is your projected Open Cup lineup, and I think the one oh thing God. that makes this a little bit of an interesting question, as opposed to just saying it's, it's take T 2s lineup and that's what it's going to be. 
is that the Timbers are taking two weeks off from MLS games uh, around the Gold Cup. And yeah. so they could technically play their entire starting lineup and then not play again for a week and a half. Yeah, um, I think what else makes this interesting is we haven't heard for sure who's going to be gone for a Gold Cup. Um, there are more U twenty kind of these hybrid U twenty three camps that Eric Williamson got drawn into after the Philadelphia game. There's more of that stuff going on, um, and then there's also two basic questions: How seriously is Seattle going to take this game? How seriously is Portland going to take this game? I don't know. I mean, what is your projected Open Cup lineup? If you ask me what I wanted the lineup to be. I would just start with the youngest players on the club and put them in the lineup. I want to see Carlos Anguiano play. I want to see Gio Calixto play. I want to see Foster Langsdorf play. He's not one of the youngest people in the club, but I want him to have this opportunity. I want Marvin Loria out there. I want these guys out there. Mojadama got to play in last year's Open Cup. I'd like to see him again. And I'd like to see Alyazivicic make his debut. Take one of those few international spots that they have. But without knowing how seriously either of these teams are going to approach next Wednesday... I don't know how anybody can predict a lineup for this one. My guess right now, but yeah, I, I, I sort of agree with it's hard to predict, is it's going to be a mixed lineup. I, I think because the Timbers have the time off, uh, especially with Blanco now being suspended, they don't want him to completely be off for a month. I, I think that uh, for the next MLS game, I think that he's likely to get into this one. I, I think that they'll put some regular starters in there. But, but even if with the time off, I think that the Timbers do want to use this game to get players minutes that are otherwise not going to get minutes this year I, I mean I think those players have been working for this and so yeah. I do think it will still be a mixed lineup where you do see players like Foster Langsdorf's in there as well Eric Williamson if he's back I, I don't know if he will be or not um, but but players that have maybe Mo, uh, Jadama like you mentioned players that deserve this opportunity as well yeah absolutely to my knowledge well I was about to say, to my knowledge, Eric Williamson won't be back. I actually don't know. I was about to just say something as if I was knowledgeable. I haven't actually asked anybody in the club. So let's just pretend like I didn't say that and I'm not overstepping into some place that I shouldn't be. Um, let's also pretend that we got to these listeners' questions earlier because these are really good questions. We should have asked them earlier, Jamie. Let's start with Patrick. With Lucas Milano not even making the 18 anymore, do you think it's inevitable that the Timbers move him this summer? What will they do with that roster spot? Yeah, I think if they can move him, they'll move him. If they can send him out alone, I don't know um, that they'd even have to wait for the summer for that one, but if they can send him out alone, they send him out alone. I, I mean, it is sort of a wasted roster spot, a good amount of investment they're using right now that could be used elsewhere. Um, with Milano not even making the 18, not, not playing any role with this team. I, I just also believe that Milano's value is incredibly low. Um, Obviously, if they just let his contract run out, they get nothing for him uh, if he just mm-hmm. goes away. But I, it's difficult. They're going to have to see what options are available, but he certainly isn't uh, making an impact on the roster right now. Yeah, I, I don't see an MLS team trading for him. means during the summer window that not only would another team want to take on Lucas and whatever portion of his contract that they would have to pay, but then Lucas would have to agree to go there. So... I, I don't think it's inevitable that he moves because there are a lot of moving pieces, Patrick. Jeffrey asks, is there room in the summer transfer window to help the defense? I mean, certainly. But it's just a matter of like, what resources are you going to sacrifice? What resources do you have? They have a couple of open roster spots at this point in time. But um, I mean, I guess one of the questions here is to the extent that they even need to help the defense, Jamie, because like we just talked about, they have three viable fullbacks. I think to get a better fullback than the ones they have right now would be very expensive. 
They have three viable center backs, or I guess some people would say they have two viable center backs, me and the Julio Cascante hype hype train still rolling down the tracks here. But again, to get a better center back than Bill Tuiloma or Laris Mabiala is going to be very expensive at this point. So I'll, I'll throw this to you. I think it's a question of whether getting that quality player in at this point, one, can happen with the resources that they have left, and two, is going to be worth yeah, those resources. Yeah, I'm not convinced that the Timbers have a ton of resources left, especially after the Fernandez signing to, to make a big summer move. I think, like we mentioned, if, if they can somehow get Milano off the books, um, that would definitely open up some flexibility if, if that's a loan deal yeah. or something to get him away. Um, but I'm not sure if that's going to happen because I'm not sure uh, who wants to take him on. Um, if they don't move a player like Milano, I'm just not sure how much resources there's going to be there. I, I think that we could see a signing, but I'm not sure if it's going to be enough to be an immediate impactful signing this summer. It's, it's hard to tell without mm. knowing exactly what the Timbers finances look like, but they certainly did invest a decent amount in this offseason. Yeah. Um, Tyler asked our last question before we switch to talking about the Thorns. He says, according to my math, the Timbers are 1-6-2 versus Western Conference opponents. How much of this record do you attribute to the grueling schedule? And should the Timbers fans be more concerned about the club's performance versus teams in their own conference? Yeah, I I think it's a really interesting point. Um, I I think you do have to give the Timbers some slack around the schedule because of the amount of games they've played on the road and the season didn't start off well and they're playing better soccer now and things like that. So at the moment, I'm not super concerned with that. Um, Obviously, the loss to LAFC didn't help, but I I think LAFC is a notch above every team in the league, Eastern or Western Conference. But the Western Conference is better than the Eastern Conference this year. I, I think it's hard to argue with that especially given how good not just the timbers have done against eastern conference teams but how how good that uh, every team in mls on the western the western conference is dominating the eastern conference right now when when they're playing um games against each other so yeah maybe, maybe it's something to keep an eye on it could it could turn out to be a concern if now that the timbers are home they can't make the most of these home games against western conference opponents but it's hard to tell at this point, just given how difficult that schedule was. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you, Jamie. Well, I guess I do agree with you, but there's another angle I want to inject here. When the Timbers were playing terribly their first six games of the road trip, they were playing mostly Western Conference teams at that time. When they started playing better, the schedule happened to have them playing Eastern Conference teams. Uh, just to throw one game out at you, if they were playing San Jose in the second half of that 12-game run instead of the first half, do we think they lose 3 nothing at Avaya? Yeah. I don't think so. I don't know that they necessarily win, but I think the, the Tyler stat is very interesting, but I think the bias here is more just kind of like if the, if the games had kind of gone west-east, west-east, west-east all along, it would, have been a, it would have been a more interesting stat. Instead, it just happened to be that the Timbers played the Colorados, the San Jose's during the during the time they were bad, and they started playing the Philadelphia's and Toronto's during the time they were good. Yeah, I think that's a good point to add as well. Um, I don't have a good transition, but we should transition. <laughs> well, sp- yeah. Speaking of the time when teams yeah, are good, the, por- the go. Portland the Portland Thorns <laughs> return for their first home game of the year, and they leave the field on Saturday at four one and two on the season after a three to nothing victory over the Chicago Red Stars. Jamie, a victory that I think is safe to say, at least in magnitude, neither you nor oh, I saw coming. Um, yeah, I predicted a win. I thought the Thorns could win at home, but I predicted a one zero win. I did not think it was going to be that. 
decisive. You predicted a Dagny Brynja starter headed set piece goal. Uh, that wasn't no. close. Um, Not close. She was good in the air during the game, just at yeah, the other end um, of the field. Yeah, but other players did step up, and the Thorns got get yeah. the 3-0 win. I think the players that everyone was talking about coming out of this game, Mitch Purse, Simone Charlie, um, Purse scores twice, Charlie has two assists. Rich wants to know, are Charlie and Purse the dynamic duo for the Thorns? Well, the internationals are away. Uh, I think it... I'm, Jamie, I'm going to be so annoying. I'm going to repeat this so often. I think it remains to be seen. Because as we saw on Sunday, the Thorns switched their formation again. Uh, they went with two up top, whereas before previous week they had gone to a 4-2-3-1. I think there could be reason to expect that every week they're going to switch their formation depending on the opponents. So we might not even have a duo up top when they return to the field in North Carolina. Uh, and also... We all loved that performance. I think part of the reason we love that performance is just the stories behind Midge Purse and Simone Charlie and how from the opening moments of that game, it was very clear they were going to give Chicago problems. But ultimately, what Midge Purse came off at like the 60, 60th minute or so, ultimately it was 60 minutes worth of time. And we have to we have to keep our minds open to the possibility that Chicago was just particularly ill-suited to deal with the way that Portland wanted to play on Sunday. Yeah, um, I agree that we need the sample size needs to be larger. I, I think we've been talking for a few weeks now about Purse being the potential goal scorer that the Thorns are, are going to need during this stretch, especially if Serna Gorchevich and Brynja Starr don't step up. Um, so I think it was good to see that sort of come to fruition. I think Charlie's a bit of a surprise, although if you talk to Mark Parsons, it, it shouldn't come as a surprise at all because he's been very high on her. Um, I think you've been very high on her too. Uh, so um, people that are watching more closely might uh, have seen that coming. Um, but I I agree with you. I, I think the sample size has to be larger to, to fully figure out if this is going to be the two players that can get the job done during this World Cup period. But... Purse has uh, three goals in two games, and the Thorns have two wins because of it. Yeah, I think, look, the Thorns haven't played this way all year. They have played this formation. They played two up top, but they this is a level of direct play that we're not used to seeing from the Thorns. They really were from the, the substantive part of this game, and I would say the substantive part was probably the first half of this game, really were just kicking it behind the Chicago Red Stars defense and relying on Mitch Purse and Simone Charlie to create havoc and they did a great job of it the tactic to me the tactic won the game as much as the players won the game in the at the beginning it was midge purse just tormenting those defenders for the next 10 minutes and then it was simone charlie for the 30 minutes after that and i think what it did is it pushed that defense so far back that the space between that defense and chicago's defensive midfielder nikki Stanton just kept growing and growing and it got to the point where every time simone charlie turned on the ball she would have 15 yards in front of her before the defense and we saw it on the first goal. Simone Charlie with her left foot feeds Mitch Purse into a space where Emily Boyd couldn't do anything about that goal. And then we saw it on the second goal where that ball ends up going wide and Simone Charlie has to play it there. But it's still, they're using the spaces that they had created by pushing Chicago's defense into a place where it became more difficult to defend. The bad part about Saturday, Sunday's game is they, they gave every other team in the league 60 minutes of video on how they were gonna, they, they're going to play with those two up top. So... I don't think this tactic is going to be as good in the future, but based on what we saw on Sunday, Jamie, I mean, 
it could still be very viable, just not as dominant. Yeah. Um, I, I think the other question coming out of sort of that performance is whether or not the Thorns have this Thorns team has really done enough to prove that it's going to be able to get the job done during this World Cup period. And I, I think uh, you can you can tell me what you think about that, but I think there is an element of we kind of have to wait and see. I mean, they've done very well so far. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've won their last two games. They're they're doing their part to not only stay competitive within the table, but continue to move up in the standings right now. But teams are going to adjust um, to what they're seeing. They're, they're not going to just let Purse and Charlie play like they did this weekend. Yeah, I'm kind of with you. But I keep going back. Well, I keep going back. I'm going to go back to what I said before. We have 90 minutes of this World Cup period team playing a certain way. We have 90 minutes of them playing a different way. I think it might be a little bit premature to draw any conclusions from either of those 90 minutes. And I think the other thing too, Jamie, is I, I was honestly thinking about this on the sideline because, you know, for the last six or eight months, I've been pretty much like saying that everybody's being a little bit too paranoid about the World Cup break. I've been, I've been basically saying, look, there were a lot of reasons 2015 went the way it did. And a lot of those reasons aren't here anymore. I'm not going to jump all the way to saying 2019 is going to be successful based on 180 minutes. I think there's still a ton of questions. I think the issues that existed in 2015 aren't the issues that they're battling in 2019, but there is a separate set of issues that still need to be addressed over these games. And I, I don't think two games worth of play has answered all those questions yet. One of the other, I think, interesting changes when, when you talk about the Thorns changing their formation uh, in this game was that we saw Anna Cernogorcevic moving to more of a number 10 role. What did you think about that? I thought it was really interesting. Um, I almost want to throw it back at you and get you to say it first, but um, that seems like it's almost rude. I think it was an attempt to try to get Anna clicking, Anna Anna Sinogorcevic clicking. We've seen her in various roles this year. We've seen her as part of two forward setup. We've seen her as a lone striker. We've seen her play on the wing. And she's been kind of steadily decent but not somebody that you look at and go, that's an indispensable part of this team. This is the fourth different position she's played this year, essentially. And if I'm thinking about that from another coach's point of view, and I, I haven't talked to the Thorns coaching staff about this at all, I'm seeing that as them going, we need to try to find a place where Anna Sernogocevic works. Now, the extent to which you actually think she works worked on Sunday probably depends on your expectations of her. I thought she was fine. I thought she helped Charlie and not only Charlie and Purse, but Brynja's daughter and Salem slash Ray behind her. But in reference to the end of the World Cup period, Serena Gocevic isn't fighting against fine. She's probably fighting against Haley Rosso and Haley Rosso's potential when you draw out an 11 of what is likely to be the Thorns team. So is Anna Serena Gocevic proving herself indispensable in that light? I, I'll let you answer this, Jamie, but I think the answer is clear. Yeah, I, 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 I... She was fine, like you said. Um, I don't think she's been good enough from what you the expectation should be. Um, she's a veteran. She's played on the international level. She came here with decently high expectations when the Thorns signed her. She should be able to excel during a break when the team, when her team and the rest of the teams throughout the league are missing their best players. And if she can't excel now, um, I think that definitely raises questions about whether she should be in the starting lineup when the other players come back. She did some good things in that game. She wasn't bad, um, but she's not the impactful presence that I, I think the Thorns want her to be. 
Yeah, it's very interesting. And I get the feeling we're going to be talking about Sunar Gochevich a lot because the underlying question that I think we need to answer over the next month is, are we seeing somebody who, despite her obvious athleticism, maybe isn't a good fit for the NWSL style of play? I think that's what we really have to get to the bottom of because her international record speaks for itself. She's Switzerland's all-time leading goal scorer. Her play in Germany, it's hard for that to speak for itself because she was used for long stretches of her career in a different position than the one she's playing now. But the bottom line is, I feel like the athleticism that she clearly inherently has is not coming off in a minute-to-minute level the same way that... I mean, this is a high standard that we same way we saw from Simone Charlie on Sunday, the same way that we saw from Mitch Purse on Sunday, the same way that we see from, um, you know, Dagny Bringer started was mixing things up on Sunday. I, I, I'm just not getting that feeling from Sionor Gorchevich, and I think that leads to Linda's question that I'll toss to you, Jamie. Uh, what are your thoughts on Sionor Gorchevich's future with the Thorns? Is she, and also, is she really a, a striker, or do you have an opinion on what position do you think is best for her? I mean, I, I don't think she's proven herself as an effective enough striker on this team, and I'm not sure she's proven herself as an effective enough number 10 or a winger i i'm not sure what her best position is i i don't think the thorns and like you said that might be why we've seen her in different positions that the thorns are trying to experiment and figure out what's going to work the best um i i think a lot of nwsl contracts are are two-year contracts or one year one plus one i so i don't know for sure if she's out of contract at the end of the year or what the status is but i wouldn't be surprised i think that this could be a big year for her because i i do think that right now it's questionable what her future is with the thorns because this is this team has really high expectations especially for players that are taking up room in their attack and if she can't be an effective an impactful element of that on a consistent basis both especially during this period and then when the other players come back as well i'm just not sure if there's a long-term future for her for her here we can walk down some of the elements here, and I referenced the 2017 team. By the end of that season, Nadia Nadim was no longer a starter. Incredibly valuable piece off the bench, but player that took an international spot, player that had other options, player that was not there at the start of 2018. You even look at Ali Long. Ali Long had lost her starting spot by the end of the year. Player with other options, player that, I don't know this for sure, but... I would be surprised if Ali Long wasn't one of the highest non-allocated player earners before she became an allocated player. These are players that become expendable the moment they move out of the starting lineup. It isn't like having you know Celeste Bure lose her starting job. Celeste Bure can stay here, not an international player, not probably not one of the highest starters. I have to keep throwing that in there because I've never asked Celeste how much she makes. But these are the players that you can afford to keep on your bench while you allocate your resources to the starting lineup. How do you think Gavin Wilkinson, Mark Parsons, Merritt Paulson would look at the potential for an open international spot going into an offseason after a World Cup year? For a team like the Thorns, that's an opportunity, right? So we'll see, we'll see how it plays out. But kind of transitioning now here, uh, Jamie, somebody that does kind of profile as a good bench option based on what we've seen through two games of her, Melissa Everett. Melissa Everett, uh, University of Oregon Duck. She's been signed to add depth during this period, and she's more than added depth. Her first touch two weeks ago, almost scored a goal with it. I don't know if it was her first touch on Sunday, but she scored a quick goal and probably should have had a second. What are your thoughts on Marissa Effort? I have no deeper question to ask here about her. Just talk about Marissa Effort for a while. <laughs> I don't know how if I can talk for a while on her. I, I don't feel like I've seen all that much either. But to have a player that's signed as a national team replacement player coming in and making that immediate impact during this period, really taking advantage of this opportunity 
is tremendous for the Thorns. Um, to have a player like her that's doing that off the bench. I, I mean, when we talked about I, what I've been saying week after week is who's going to score? What, what's the attack going to look like? That's been my biggest worry around this World Cup period. And, and suddenly you have a game where Purse steps up. You have a game where Simone Charlie steps up and then Marissa Everett comes off the bench and says, hey, I, I'm an option as well and, and I'm going to be able to score goals in this league. Uh, so I, I think it's just great for the Thorns to be able to get a player like that essentially just coming in um, unknown uh, as a national team replacement player. Yeah. I, I, I'm going to, I'm going to be curious as to whether she yeah. can continue putting herself in position to get these same opportunities, but she's had three great opportunities through her very, very limited playing time. She probably has 21, 24 minutes of play at this point. In case you guys can't tell, I don't know the number off the top of my head. I just know two very late sub appearances and she's come close to three goals. It seems unsustainable, but at the same time, you have to give her credit for just getting herself in position to, uh, to take those chances. And, you know, Part of me wants to go back to the reaction to when Mallory Weber and Ifeoma Onamanu were released. And that was kind of a confusing period of time because a logical question is, wait a minute, this is a World Cup year. But Marissa Everett is somebody that trained with the Thorns during the preseason. She's had other training stints with the Thorns. And I mean, it would be awesome if like even me can be more transparent about these players that are training. But honestly, most of these players aren't signed. It's kind of like the Olivia Moultrie situation as we talked about it uh, in the weeks after her signing or before her debut at uh, Merlot Field. It's like ultimately she's not a member of this team. Well, Mar- Marissa Everett is a member of the team now. We can talk about her a little bit more. But there, there are always Marissa Everett's kind of floating around, which only makes it Maybe it only makes it more confusing, Jamie, when Amal Weber and Ifeoma Onomanu get released because you then have to go, one, I don't think they should be released, and two, is there some kind of mystery Marissa around here, and why don't I know yeah. about her? Um, so obviously, uh, Marissa Everett is here because of the national team. Players are gone. The Thorns have uh, nine players at the, heading to the World Cup, which begins on Friday um, with a game between France and South Korea. The NWSL is taking a total of a weekend off. The, the MLS yes. is taking two weeks off for the Gold Cup, um, but but NWSL is taking one week mm-hmm. off. How do you feel about that? I feel like it's one week too many. I don't want to be. I don't want to have a weekend without soccer. I mean, I'm dead tired right now, Jamie. You and I talked about this before the show. I'm so tired that I'm having my worst allergy attack, allergy attack of the season because I'm not getting enough rest. But I still want games this weekend. I'm going to be bored come Friday night, Saturday morning. And yeah, I think a lot of people would want breaks that cover the whole tournament or go deeper to the tournament. No, I want as many games as possible. And as evidence to why you should too, Sunday. Sunday was fun. Sunday was great. I want more games like that. I don't need the nine World Cup players here to be really into a soccer game. I mean, to be honest, I don't really need much to be into a soccer game. But I'm going to keep talking like this to make my point. Yeah, I get the reflex to take a break during the World Cup. And from a league level, maybe you want to play as many games as possible with your best product as possible. But um, I'm filing a class action lawsuit to get some kind of damages for not giving me soccer this weekend. Yeah, um, I disagree. I think from the Thorns level, sure. This was a great weekend. The Thorns drew over 19,000 to the home opener, brand new stadium. Thorns put on a show with the players that you haven't seen a ton of getting a chance to step up. That was an awesome game of soccer. It's not going to look like that throughout the rest of the league, particularly when the national team players are missing. Oh, my gosh. So... 
You're a blasphemy. I can't believe this. I, I just, I think from a Thorns perspective, sure, play through this period. Let, let's give these players an opportunity. The fans will be there. The, the atmosphere will be great. But I, I can't imagine that it's going to be that way elsewhere. It, it hasn't been that way elsewhere to the, that degree for sure. Um, I'd like to see the yeah. NWSL at least taking two weeks off here, and they've decided not to, and I think that's a mistake. What's the difference between one week and two in just your mind? Just another game. I mean, I would like to see three weeks off, but I it just it, it's it's crazy to me that we're getting a longer break for the Gold Cup and MLS, and we're getting for the World Cup and NWSL. Mm-hmm. I think that's mostly because the players' contracts run longer, and they could afford to do that and still maintain the integrity of their season. The NWSL contracts, as everybody knows, is generally about seven months. Yeah. It depends on different factors of the scheduling that year. So, uh, obviously, the, I mean, really, they're faced with a choice do you want to cut the schedule down to fewer than 24 games or do you want to just basically give everybody a bye week i mean i guess the other options are okay start cramming these games in there so that you're having these three games and eight day stretches based on multiple midweek games but you know i can see your point of view too and like i said there is an inherent logic behind why don't we play fewer games with our most valuable players gone um but i and there's also a logic if you're a fan in Chicago or North Carolina right now, just like, oh my God, get this period over. I don't want to drop more points. They're having the 2015 Portland experience right now, and they're going to have to try to pull themselves out of it. I do think it's interesting, Jamie, that uh, the person who steered the 2015 Portland ship, Paul Riley, North Carolina is kind of off to a slow start in this period. I think they can turn it around. They did this weekend winning three to nothing, but they won three to nothing over an Orlando team that looks historically bad. And one of the other major parts of the 2015 Portland Thorns experience, Alex Morgan is the captain of Orlando. So um, I admit I'm saying those things to kind of reinforce the narrative that I've been squeaking about all along. But of course, I think that's interesting. Well, you said that you're not going to get to watch soccer this weekend, but, but there is going to be soccer. It's just not going to be in Portland. Um, the World Cup is starting. Oh. There's going to be Thorns players playing. Is there anything you're anything you're looking forward to? Storylines, uh, games that you want to see around this World Cup? Yeah, I mean Friday's game where Amandine Henri is going to be wearing the armband for France is going to be great. Uh, I think I've been overlooking France as a potential kind of co-favorite. And just forgetting that they're playing at home and they have a squad where half of those players are really experienced players and the other half are youthful and have a lot of energy. I'm looking forward to Australia's debut on Sunday. I think we're all wondering if Australia can get back on the same track they were a year ago. But I guess the thing that I'm really um, looking forward to, Jamie, and, and not to sound like a homer here, I hope people don't think I'm a homer because usually I go into these World Cup tournaments not picking the U.S. I didn't pick the U.S. in 2015 or 2011. I think I picked Germany both years. Um, I really think that the U.S. is really well-positioned in this tournament. You just look at the talents that they have. Megan Rapino, Tobin Heath, Lindsey Horan, Julie Ertz, Becky Sauerbrunn. These are talents that are almost unmatched at their positions. And guess what? I haven't even mentioned Alex Morgan yet. If you have a team like that, and then you've got somebody like Sam Mewis in reserve, your team, you have a team with so much depth that you're not bringing Casey Short to the World Cup, you should win the World Cup. So I'm interested to see if all the experience that has been built up over the years in players like Morgan and Heath and Rapino can keep this team on course and produce a back-to-back win. What about yeah, you, Jamie? I am excited to see if the U.S. Can, can defend its title. I am really interested to see what happens, I think, looking at the quarterfinals. It, it seems sort of a crash course for the U.S. to potentially meet France that early, which is a little bit disappointing, yeah. but that's going to be a really interesting game if it happens because um, it could go either way, even though the U.S. is favored. Um, 
I'm uh, Christine Sinclair probably isn't excited for this, but I'm excited to see Christine Sinclair probably break the all-time goal scoring record. Um, she she probably doesn't care. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure she cares somewhere in her heart. But I think she cares about yes. getting it out of the way so, as early as possible. Maybe to be in honest that with first you, game. I think they play Cameroon. She can just uh, that's what Emily Menga said. Just score. I think it's like three goals. She's out, off um, two or three goals that she needs at this point. Um, yeah. But I'm excited for that. And I, I, like you mentioned, I'm really excited to see kind of where Australia is. Um, they, they've sort of been billing themselves as one of the contenders. And I'm excited to see if that, that sort of comes uh, to fruition. Yeah. Uh, to just talk about uh, Christine Sinclair for a bit. Um, I was having an interview with Nadine Ongerer last week. Oh, my God. It's all running together, Jamie. It's been such a long time. Uh, but I was talking to her, and she just kind of casually dropped on the record. People will hear it soon that Christine Sinclair is in the best shape of her life. And when you hear coaches say that, part of you kind of just says they're supposed to say that about their players. They're supposed to build them up. They're supposed to give people a reason to respect them. Christine Sinclair, over these three months she was here training with the Thorns, was literally the last player off the field almost every time. And she was just doing sprints by herself. Had a watch, timed herself, would sprint 40 yards, sprint 40 yards. She seems so intent on making sure she has every box checked going into this tournament that it's intimidating. It's really intimidating because we see in the playoffs every year that when we're towards the end of the season when Christine Sinclair kind of kicks into gear, you're like, oh, wait a minute. There is like another Christine Sinclair, like the all capital letters version of Christine Sinclair. Like the, the normal punctuation is really good. This one is incredible. Are we going to get the incredible Christine Sinclair for seven, eight games? For seven games? <laughs> um, I'm interested to see it because if that happens, you know, the last games of knockout round play, Canada's not going to be a favorite against any team they face in the quarter, semis, or finals. But as the Olympics in London showed us, they'll have a chance. They'll have a chance to beat anybody. Yeah, yeah I think Canada... Um... Canada's definitely in there in the potential teams that can make it pretty far, um, depending on specifically how Christine Sinclair does. Um, the, the Thorns players are, are going to teams that, I mean, the Australians, the Canadians, I, I'm not so high on Brazil, um, and U.S. I mean, Thorns fans are going to have a lot to watch uh, in the next month. Yeah. Yeah, Brazil's in a tough place. But even before even before those really important games in the knockout round start to arrive, the Thorns are going to return to the field. Like you've said before, like we've said before, all the teams are off this weekend, but come Saturday, June 12th, the Thorns are going to be facing, at this point, probably their prime rival since the Tacoma Reign don't <laughs> occupy Seattle anymore. Uh, and the history between the North Carolina Courage and the Thorns is pretty deep at this point. Uh, North Carolina Courage, like we talked about, have been struggling ever since some of their players had left. They've already lost more games than they did all of last season, and they're sitting out of the playoff spots right now. They recovered this weekend with a 3 to nothing victory against Orlando, where Kristen Hamilton had a hat trick. But they also lost McCall Zerboni again to an injury that they haven't announced at this point. So, Jamie, that is the context behind this visit to Kerry. What are your thoughts about the first meeting of the year between these yeah, two teams? I think it, it could be a, a chance for the Thorns to get a big confidence boost against a team that they've struggled against in, in last season. Um, the the Courage aren't, I mean, the Courage aren't the team that they, they aren't the dominant team. They haven't been the dominant team that they were last year. And they're obviously missing a lot of players. And, and so it's going to be a very different game, I, I think, than what the Thorns have seen in the past against North Carolina. I don't think it's going to really say too much about how these teams will match up going forward this season. 
Um, but the Thorns are catching the courage at a time when they aren't necessarily um, playing their best soccer, that they've had some disappointing results. And um, we'll see sort of how the game plan for comes out. I, I think, as you mentioned, Mark Parsons has been willing to sort of change his formation, give different looks. And, and I would assume that he's going to sort of build his lineup and system based on what he thinks can, can be most difficult for North Carolina. Um, I wouldn't be surprised to see this sort of be like a, the chess match tactical type game from a coaching perspective. Um, but yeah, it's yeah. tough to play on the road, but this is a, I think an interesting opportunity for the thorns. Yeah. It's going to be very interesting because I think we associate Paul Riley's teams, even when he was here in Portland, I mean, you look at some of those score lines in Portland games are ridiculous, like six, three scorers, seven, two score lines, um, not teams that sit back, not teams that cower from a challenge uh, would rather be punched in the mouth twice than, forego their chance to punch somebody in the mouth once. If they do that, after looking at what Portland did to Chicago this weekend, they're probably brave on the brave on the borderline of stupidity. Because if I'm looking at that Chicago game from and looking at Portland, I go, the one the one way I'm pretty sure that they can be in this game is if I do what Chicago did. If I play if, if I start with a higher line, if I try to play my game. Teams are going to have to adjust to Sloan Charlie and Mitch Purse. Now, Mark Parsons is going to have to evaluate whether or to what extent Paul Riley might adjust. I mean, he switched formations this weekend. They usually go with a box midfield. They went with a 4-2-3-1 this weekend. Who knows what other changes that they might make, but I think this is going to be very interesting. And and for a game that is happening during this World Cup break, I, I think there's going to be a lot of investment on both fans' parts into what the result is going to be. So, yeah, let's, uh, let's I guess... We have two predictions to make. Um, that one is going to be the one that matters. Let's start, I guess, with the prediction that mm. I, I care very minimally about. Um, <laughs> yeah. Timbers at Seattle in U.S. Open Cup. Um, yeah. I, I, I'm going to go. We'll hear what your side bet is. I'm going to go with the 2-0 loss here. Timbers have to go on the road. Both teams are going to play mixed lineups. Um, Seattle has the advantage playing at home. Also, I... Just I'm tired of seeing the Timbers go play at Seattle in U.S. Open Cup. Uh, God, I I don't even want to justify this process by even making a side bet. And we know at this point what I think about predictions. Um, you know what? I'm going to predict that one team scores a goal. Okay. It's to- it's absolutely going to be a, in regulation. In regulation there will be a- or not penalty kicks. Oh. I mean, it, it, it has it has. Oh, to yeah, you're so right. Let's. Let's at least give a chance. You know what? I've I've already gone on record, JB. I guess I can't take it back. I mean, clearly, what you're getting at is I, I'm trying to make the worst prediction possible here. So, I should have said that one team will advance. That would it should have been my prediction. But I'll go ahead and just go. You know, stick with my first instinct here. There will be at least one goal in this game. That's what I'm predicting. Okay. I'm not going to count penalty kicks if they go to penalty kicks on zero zero. Yeah, no, I I screwed up. <laughs> I screwed up. You're right. But if it goes to penalty kicks, if it goes to penalty kicks at zero zero, then. I tried to make the worst prediction, the easiest prediction in the world, and I failed, and I'll have to live with that. Now, the other game, the one that's going to matter before we record again, North Carolina, the Thorns, two Saturdays from now. Jamie, your prediction. This is is a tough one because I think with both these teams, it's sort of hard to predict what either of these teams is going to look like in the game. And I think the strategy, like I mentioned before, is going to matter a lot. It's hard to predict against North Carolina at home. Um but it could go either way. I am going to predict a 1-0 loss. 
And I'm going to go to the other end of the spectrum, at least stylistically. This is a lot like the LAFC game prediction between you and me, where you predicted a lot of goals. I predicted very few. You ended up being right on that one. I'm going to say that between the teams in this game, there are going to be at least three goals. So the subtext of that is I think this is going to border be closer to a shootout than a grinded out game. And you know, like I was talking about, it'll be interesting to see what Paul Riley does. I would bet that he goes after the Thorns. If for no other reason than if the Thorns end up beating him, he can just shrug his shoulders and go, eh, World Cup season. What are you going to do? Well, that just leaves us with the fantasy update. Um, thank you again to Mark uh, for once again sending this to us every single week. There is going to be less fantasy games coming up this week because there is less MLS games, which is why we won't be recording next week. But to give the fantasy update in third place, is Mark. Uh, that's Flicking Portland FC. In second place, we have Global Puppet Show Club, which is Xavier. And in first place, I still Wook score more goals, which is Robert. Um, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, we're seeing some consistency here. I mean, we have Wook score more goals that's been on the top for quite some time. Although there is this weird thing that's going on with the standings right now that Mark has been telling us about. There's some kind of glitch where some teams appear to have played more games than others. The The league point total isn't matching the wins and losses for some teams in the league so it'll be interesting to see what the official standings are when these things work out but the one thing that jumped out to me about the standings this week jamie is that we always get the top six from mark in a screenshot and the top six are as close as they've been in i don't know four or five weeks First place team in the league has 33 points right now. The sixth place team has 30 points. So there could be a lot of movement there. The only caveat, the first place team in the league will score more goals. They probably should have 39 because through 13 weeks of the season, they are not only undefeated, they're perfect. Well, we'll have to keep watching the fantasy update. Thank you again to Mark for sending that every week. And thanks for Richard for, uh, you know, learning, learning to be a, an analyst for fantasy uh, <laughs> as best as you can. Um, <laughs> I, I, I think that's a great euphemism for it I think a lot of people would call that something that we would have to bleep out of this podcast <laughs> well that is a, a note to end on um, that is all we have for this week but you can find us every week on Oregon Live, Sometime Footy and Timbers.com you can also subscribe on iTunes and Stitcher and we won't be back next week but until the week after take care <laughs>